Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. We're in front of the National Museum of American History. We're asking people, what is one story or fact that you thought you knew about American history that turned out not to be true? Growing up, I was always told that George Washington had wooden teeth. Everybody thought Thomas Edison invented the first light bulb. He actually did not. I, for some reason, as a little kid, thought that if you were elected president once, you just had to say, oh, I just want to do it again, and you could run again and again and again. I thought Betsy Ross was the first maker of the U.S. flag. It actually is not. I thought the American involvement in World War II was we're the heroes of the story, we're the saviors, and in reality there's more to it. There was anti-Semitism at home, there's racism at home, there's a clouded political environment, and there's actually more to the story than just America saved the day. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Ron DeSantis has once again succeeded at placing himself at the center of national political conversation. The as-yet-undeclared presidential contender has learned well from his nemesis, Donald Trump. If you want to distinguish yourself in Republican primary circles, nothing works quite like picking a fight over race, gender, or history, and best if you can hit all three. Schools emerged a few years ago as the preferred venue for these cultural provocations, and I just feel like the rest of us are still sort of reeling in the face of the onslaught. Certainly, I will say that as a host of a show that talks a ton about race, gender, and history, I am preoccupied with the question of how we'll engage usefully in what will absolutely be an intensifying conversation as we head into a presidential election. Which is why I'm excited this week to talk with Princeton University history professor Kevin Cruz. Kevin's scholarship has focused on the evolution of modern conservative politics and its relationship to the civil rights movement, among other things. His most recent book is a collection he co-edited titled Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, which perhaps will find itself soon on a banned list in some state. Kevin, thanks for making time for us. My absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, so we got to start with Ron DeSantis. Yep. For those who haven't kept up, here's the story in short. The DeSantis administration has refused to allow Florida students to get a new advanced placement course on Black studies. The College Board, which oversees AP studies, subsequently announced changes to the curriculum, which the board says were already in progress well before the controversy in Florida. They merely reflect the evolution of the course from a pilot initiative to an official framework. But the whole thing has been deeply disturbing to many. And Kevin, what did you see as you watched the story unfold? Well, I was struck by, uh, I mean, A, Ron DeSantis appearing behind a, a banner about, about being against indoctrination as the governor is trying to tell people what to think right. was, was kind of deeply ironic, but also I, I thought he, he kind of uh, perfectly uh, crystallized uh, a real problem we have with the way in which people understand civil rights history in particular. Uh, he said, you know, we don't need to go into all this critical race theory stuff. Uh, we don't need to talk about structural uh, inequalities and systematic racism. Instead, we just need to know that there were a few brave people who felt the need to stand up and did so. Period. Full stop. Okay. Some follow-up questions for that. Why did they feel the need to stand up? Why did they have to stand up? Why was it difficult? Why do we praise these people? And there's, we, he's got this vision of American history that is, in his words, cut and dry. Yeah. It's not cut and dry. And the civil rights movement is a perfect example of this. So we've got an essay in the book by Glenda Gilmore, Yale historian, who leans right into this. And Glenda's uh, uh, chapter is called The Myth of the Good Civil Rights Protest. And you might think, well, okay, why is it bad if we say civil rights protests were good? Well, we've put them on a pedestal so far out of reach from today, right? We've sterilized and sanitized the civil rights struggle to the point where apparently the only phrase Martin Luther King Jr. ever spoke right. was that one line about judging his kids not by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. Full stop. That was it. And so we've reduced King's message to that. We've cut off all the stuff he had to say about even in the March on Washington address, even on the one speech they right. apparently know. He talks about structural poverty. He talks about police brutality. He talks about all of these issues. He later on went on to deep denunciations of capitalism and militarism. Uh, so this was this was King's stick. It was very radical. But again, we've reduced King to this very narrow vision. And in doing so, we've said, well, who could be opposed to that, right? So there was no controversy. There was no scandal. There was no uh, sense that this was, uh, as many people now called it at the time, socialism, Marxism. This was un-American. He was a radical. You know, King, by the end of his life, is deeply unpopular. He's pulling in, in like the 30s uh, right before he's assassinated. And he is, by the and way, he's assassinated. assassinated. <laughs> That's sort of a data point in how controversial the man was. And yet we've reduced it. And people like DeSantis put up that image of Martin Luther King. Why? It's to say, oh, fine, this thing in the past we now agree on, and there's no connective tissue to the present, right? So you hold up the good civil rights protest to say these protests today are bad. These protests today block traffic. Well, they, they made the same complaints of, literally about the March on Washington. These protests today are disruptive. Uh, they're bad for the economy. Uh, they're divisive. They're uh, driven by leftists. All these claims were made about the civil rights struggle of the 60s, and yet if you've drawn this false dividing line between the past and the present, it's an attempt to make that past sealed off and useless for us when it's really vibrant and important today. Can can you just say a little bit more about that, that DeSantis quote that he said, you know, history should be, quote, just cut and dried history 
uh, and that Black History said, you learn all the basics, you learn about the great figures, and, you know, I view it as American history. And I do feel like it sort of connects to the larger thesis of the book that you have produced here. Like, for that sounds on its face, maybe to some, straightforward and reasonable. It's just basic history. Yeah. Why, why is that a controversial idea? Can you just address that notion that, like, history should yeah. be, that there's basic history and some other kind of history? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the idea, and, and this is remarkable, I think DeSantis was a history major, so he should have learned this at some point. History isn't cut and dry. There, there was not some, you know, tome of facts that was has been handed down in generations and generations, and, and we all read off the same book. If history is cut and dry, someone's got to cut it. Someone's got to dry it, right? And a, a, another essay in the book, I think, speaks to this beautifully. Karen Cox's essay on Confederate monuments, right? We are told by people on the right that the effort to tear down Confederate monuments is destroying history. Now, a newsflash for those who haven't been in a classroom in a long time, historians actually don't use statues uh, and monuments in the classroom. They're much too large. They're really unwieldy. <laughs> Instead, we use these things called books and primary sources. Well, the problem with this argument that tearing down the monuments distorts history is it ignores why those monuments went up and when they went up. These aren't monuments that were created right in the uh, aftermath of the Civil War. No, they were created largely in the 1910s and 1920s, and again in the 1950s and 1960s. And why were they created? Well, they were created during periods of massive mobilization of white supremacy across the South. And we have the documents from the speeches people gave when they dedicated these, and they tell us exactly why they were there. And it was clearly to buttress white supremacy. I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. We had a monument there called Silent Sam. And you can read the dedication speech to this. In the speech, Julian Carr says this monument is going up as a reminder, and he points as a reminder to that Negro wench over there mm. to remember whose society this is. It's not very subtle, right? But so that in and of itself, these Confederate monuments weren't ever to rewrite the history of the past. Right. And so the effort to tear them down isn't tearing down uh, real history. It's tearing down a fake history, right? Someone else cut and dried that history for Ron DeSantis. He wanted to go and look at it and say, ah, oh, that was history. Yeah. No, we have to understand the process of this. It's it's a constant uh, changing. You know, people talk about revisionist history is bad. All re history, all good history is revisionist. We're constantly reviving our understandings, reviving our interpretations, revising our yeah. conclusions about it, right? That's what we do. And, and the Confederate monument, Monuments is a really stark example. Um, we're going to walk through a bunch of those that follow a very similar pattern uh, that you get to in your book. And listeners, we will have time for a couple of your calls in this, too. So I'd love to hear how any misconception about American political history has shown up in your own life. Maybe it's because you're a parent and it came up with something with your kids have or have not learned in school. Or maybe it's something you learned recently that was really impactful to you. Uh, Kevin, why this book now? Why 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 did you feel like? you and your your co-editor, Julian Zelizer, that this was the time for this book? Yeah, well, you know, there's always been assaults on history. There have always been myths and misunderstandings about American history. That's a constant. And historians have always been pushing back against them. But in the last five to six years, the kind of the, the broad Trump era, we really saw this reach uh, uh, kind of a crescendo. Um, uh, the, the, the amount of of things in which people were saying at the state level from people like DeSantis and, and Governor Abbott in Texas, certainly at the national level, uh, the Trump administration was uh, a nonstop set of claims about the history of politics of the presidency in which Trump was the best at this and the biggest at that, whatever. Uh, to the final days of, of the Trump administration was this effort to put out what he called this uh, 1776 commission that was going to engage in, quote, patriotic education 
um, uh, notably a, a plan that had no American historians involved uh, in the final report uh, because it was so at odds with what uh, American historians have done. So throughout all these years, historians have been active in, in pushing back on these things. Uh, one of the bright spots of this moment is that the very same venues like social media that let a lot of these lies and misinformation about the history spread we can also use to push back. So we've all been engaged on, you know, Twitter, Facebook, um, a Substack, things like that, to push back on this. Uh, but we thought, well, that's fine that we do all that kind of uh, stuff in the in, in the public media sphere. But what do historians do best? Well, we write. So we decided to get some of these people together to write uh, what we think are a kind of short, accessible chapters uh, designed for a general audience, meant to be read by people who don't have a you know a PhD but want to know what the field is, is found about these big issues. And one of the things, just to underline quickly before we go to a break, that you're saying, one of the things that's unique about this moment is the effort to rewrite history in real time. Is something you say in yeah. the book? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's happening constantly. It's not this, you know, thinking about it a few years in the past. We saw this was January sixth, right? I mean, as as soon as the uh, the you know the first papers were you know the headlines were dry on them, uh, there was an effort to kind of change the picture right away. So we're, we're kind of seeing this unfold in in, in a in a uh, an incredibly quick fashion, which is different than the lost cause kind of mythology that you just talked right. about before that took decades to unfold. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The lost cause was you know 40, 50 decades in the making, and now it's happened in a couple of days. <laughs> exactly, a news cycle, and we're done. Yeah. I'm talking with Kevin Cruz, co-editor of the new book, Myth America. Historians take on the biggest lies and legends about our past. And listeners, you're welcome to chime in as well. We'd love to hear from you if you uh, have had any misconceptions about American political history show up in your own life. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by Kevin Cruz, co-editor of the new book, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. We're talking about how those legends and lies are kind of getting get, re, getting new life in real time right now uh, in our political life. Let's go straight to Martin in the Bronx here in New York. Martin, welcome to the show. Uh, yes, good afternoon, <clears throat> or good evening, rather. Uh, I did have a question. Uh, but first, I'm going to preface that question by recommending a great book on the subject of neoconservatism. It's called by Dr. Martin, Anywhere Martin let me ask you, did, you ahead. said you had a question. Oh, yes, yes. I, yeah, I just wanted to find out uh, what the author's take is on, uh, you know, basically the uh, neoconservative origins of American exceptionalism, 
uh, expounded by people. I'm going to let you go, Martin. Yeah. So first off, I just want to say that the uh, I think I'm our producers are looking it up, but I, I don't think you want to go check out that book. <laughs> um, Kevin, you're shaking your head. No. Can you uh, help us fact check that? And then I do want to talk about American exceptionalism in its history. Yeah. So American exceptionalism does have a neoconservative uh, uh, origin. Uh, but our, our piece in that book is written by uh, by David Bell. Uh, who's a, a colleague of mine at Princeton, a French historian, actually, um, uh, who writes about this beautifully kind of from outside the field. Uh, and what he notes is that, yeah, neoconservatives certainly popularized this term in the 90s, uh, but the origins of the term come with a, a very different person on the political spectrum, certainly Joseph Stalin, who helps popularize this in the 1930s. And the idea isn't that, uh, the caller said, uh, America's not beholden to to the laws of the world. The original idea was that America wasn't really following the laws of history as Marxists understood them. There were certain lines of development in which a country would naturally progress towards uh, communism, and America didn't have certain parts of that long history, didn't have a feudal past, didn't have other things, and therefore it was the exception to the rule. And this is why uh, American communists started trotting this term out to explain to a very angry Stalin why they hadn't succeeded in rooting communism in America. So it was a, for a long time an academic term, and then it gets resurfaced again by the neoconservatives, largely from Newt Gingrich, who himself had a PhD in, in American history, liked to think of himself uh, as an academic, and took this term that was largely still in kind of seminar rooms and made it something in his stump speeches. And there it was, not just that America's different, but America's better. And, you know, it, which is one of the most ironic um, turns in our misconceptions. I also want to just really underline that that book is an anti-Semitic book yeah. uh, explicitly. Uh, I think that's the second time someone has called in to try to uh, uh, troll us with that book. And I just want to take a minute on that, Kevin, because part of what we have in this moment in these debates about history is it is it feels like not everybody is engaging the conversation with goodwill. Yeah. Yeah, and and I, I, I just yeah, and, and that's the problem. Like, I mean, you you know, when you open the show, I, I heard a bunch of things that people they were missed that they heard about American past, about Betsy Ross or you know George Washington and the cherry tree, and, and these are certainly myths. And historians have talked about that. That's not what we're talking about. Those are myths that don't have any malice behind them, right? That that aren't nobody's trying to you know, uh, maybe a, some mom is trying to trick their child into you know not telling lies by telling them the George Washington story. But there's nothing more sinister than that. What we have today are a set of lies about the American past that are consciously being spread by people who have a political agenda in mind. So if you don't want the government to be involved in uh, in the economy, you spread lies that the New Deal was a failure or the Great Society uh, made poverty worse or things like that. Or again, the, the line about uh, the old civil rights movement being nothing like Black Lives Matter. You spread that story to try to dry up support for Black Lives Matter. So I think there um, there really are some people, not everyone, but some people out there really do have some um, some real partisan uh, motives uh, to spread these things. And that's what makes it really hard. You know, in the past, yeah. we've always argued about, well, which facts are more important, right? Uh, but today, it, we've been reduced to arguing, no, which facts are really facts, right? Because people are just inventing things out of whole cloth. It's not a spin on the past. It's, in some cases, complete denial uh, of the of the actual reality of what happened. Oh, along those lines, one of the things I learned from uh, reading your collection is I was surprised to learn there is an actual effort to argue that the Southern strategy didn't exist. Yeah. So the Southern strategy being uh, the um, strategy of the Republican Party that developed uh, to exploit a white backlash to the civil rights movement and build a Southern base. 
there is now a real effort to say that that's not a fact anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. If you told me this is the essay I wrote, if you told me 10, 15 years ago, I'd have to write that this thing really happened, I would have laughed at you because it was the most common conventional wisdom among historians and political scientists. And it's because this is not a hidden history. It is very obvious in a plain sight. Nixon talks about this in his memoirs. Goldwater does. Nixon's aide, Harry Dent, Strom Thurmond, um, uh, Kevin Phillips, uh, another Nixon architect, talks about this in the newspaper at the time. It's all over the archives. It's all over their memoirs. It's all over the newspapers and media of the day. It's right out in, in, in plain sight. And yet, in recent years, even though there was a moment, again, 10 years ago, in which leaders of the Republican Party were not only acknowledging this, they were apologizing for this. Ken Melman, the head of the RNC, apologized to the NAACP. Michael Steele, an African-American head of the RNC, also apologized for it. And there was a sense there in kind of the Bush era, the George W. Bush era, that the Republican Party was reckoning with this past and turning the page, right? They were moving on to a much more racially diverse party, and they were making peace with the past, and we're going to turn the page. Well, in the era of Trump, that all got undone. And I think the effort was here, the, the point was, we're being accused of racism today. An easy way to deny that is to deny that we had ever done anything racist in the past, right? Uh, and so they went from simply apologizing for the Southern strategy to pretending it never happened, right? And this is, you know, people like Dinesh D'Souza or, or Carol Swain wrote a, a, did a video for Prager University in which he said the Southern strategy was a myth created by liberal elitists in the last decade or so, right? It, it's kind of, or I don't remember what date you put on it, but it was a recent invention uh, and, and wholly created out of, out of nothing. And yet it's right there. So I went in and wrote yeah. this piece on the Southern strategy, which was actually good because uh, good for me because I, I constantly was debating people online who were pushing this argument, and there was no good short text to recommend. You know, a lot of because it didn't need to exist. It didn't need to exist that. before, right? So, so you <laughs> had so people you have refer to it in passing, or they had these nine hundred page tomes, which I couldn't recommend to someone on on yeah. on on, uh, uh, on Twitter. So I wrote the I wrote the thing myself. It's what historians, it's what teachers often do. You want to assign a text, it's not there. Write it yourself. Uh, we're getting short on time, but I want to sneak in another call. Patricia in Westfield, New Jersey. Patricia, welcome yes, to the show. Hi, thank you so much for this conversation. Can you hear me? We can. You got about 30 seconds, Patricia. Great. I just wanted to say you can't have American history without African-American history. Yeah. You cannot. Yeah. And, and, that's, and the, yeah, and that's, that's one level. Where... not a footnote. That's right. That's right. And that's one level where I think Ron DeSantis was actually right. He said African-American history is American history. Yes, that's true. But it's not subsumed on that, right? I mean, the whole point of African-American studies, it came out of the Black Power movement in the late 60s and early 70s. That's the reason we have colleges that teach this stuff. If you've got an AP uh, course that's leading up to that uh, that thing, you've got to have uh, the origins of this movement in mind, which would come out of a, a kind of a radical engagement with the moment uh, of the late 60s and early 70s. Kevin, as we're starting to wrap up, and I'm thinking about the consequences of this stuff, this fight over history, um, do, do you worry about the well-meaning people who uh, watch this stuff play out and decide, I guess you can never know what's true or not. I mean, yeah. you know, history, who was there? What, how much do you hear that kind of thing nowadays? I, I do hear a lot of that. Um, uh, we often hear this in the phrase of maybe not who knows, but but, oh, we can't judge those people. They were a person of their time. Yeah, but there were other people of their time, right? So again, the Confederate monument piece, we often hear, oh, well, these were products of their time. We shouldn't judge them. No, African-Americans at the time, these things were going up, were screaming about how bad they were and how horrible they were and how false the history was. So there are voices out there we just got to listen. So I'd say 
rather than taking the experts versus experts, look at the source material, right? So we, we point people in this book to a lot of primary sources they can look up themselves, really dig in and, and get the history yourself. You you refer in the book to bipartisan myths. I just want to get to this quickly because you've talked about partisan myths and have and say that they're actually some of the most enduring. What yeah. what is a bipartisan myth? Um, can you give an example of that and why it's so enduring? Yeah. Well, so bipartisan myths are ones that aren't really kind of pushed with a partisan angle, like the Southern strategy attack, but rather again the idea of American exceptionalism. America was never an empire. Native Americans have vanished from among us. These are held broadly across the political aisle, and so they don't seem to have a partisan motive, and therefore we assume they must be true. Uh, but it, it is the case that sometimes we're all, we've are all we all been fooled across the partisan spectrum, uh, and, and so there are ones that don't have that kind of political motive. Have, have you, in fact, been banned yet? Has the book yet been banned somewhere? Not yet, but fingers crossed. It's, it's a sign <laughs> we're doing God's work. <laughs> Indeed. Kevin Cruz is a professor of history at Princeton University and co-editor of the new book, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. Kevin, thanks for making this time for us. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Keep up with the show by following us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. And you can always talk to us by going to our website at notesfromamerica.org, where you can just click on a little record button and leave us a voicemail right there. We love to hear from you. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Reporting, producing, and editing by Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.